I'm Shereen Patek, and this is Starting Out. Digiday's newest podcast, where I take the personal route with the movers and shakers in the marketing industry to find out their story, how they became the leaders they are today, and what's their special power that makes their craft so remarkable. It was 1992. Okay. I was graduating Syracuse. Okay. It was a recession. And my father, who was a corporate lawyer, told me, and he hated his job. So he said, follow something you love. And the only thing I could think of was sports, because I love playing sports. So I said, hmm, why don't I try and go into sports marketing? So I, I got this book, and I applied to 32 of the sports marketing firms that were in New York. And every single one of them sent me a letter. And this is back in the day. You would literally type the letters, and you'd mail them out, and you'd get back this letter. And it would say, thank you for your interest. Your qualifications are really impressive, but we don't have a position for you. That only pissed me off more because my qualifications, I didn't have any. So <laughs> I knew they were absolutely full of it. I took each one and I would put them on, uh, on my wall just as kind of motivation as I sat there unemployed. As I would come home, I'd look at that and say, all right, you got to do something today. A lot of people have great tricks to divulge when you ask them what made them successful. But for some people, it's much simpler than that. It's just the power of pure, unadulterated, old-fashioned hard work. And that's been Brian Wiener's mantra. Brian is the chairman of the digital agency 360i, a marketing veteran who has held what feels like every kind of role in the industry and has been around, it also feels like, almost forever. Although he really does not look like it. His secret to success? Work your way to the top and forget what everyone else is up to, even when it was his peers at a business school who were lending big jobs on Wall Street. My sister, who was in Newport, and some guy was hitting on her, and it turned out he worked at a sports marketing company. So being the good sister that she was, she maneuvered that into, hey, can you help my brother get an interview? <laughs> and he said yes, and about two weeks later, I showed up at the office, I asked for him. It turns out he got fired that day. I kind of sat there in the lobby, and, and someone felt sorry for me, so I went to go sit in the VP of Marketing's office. She sat down with me, and she explained that, I'm sorry, we don't really have job opportunities and I had looked around as we were going to her office I saw tons of young people I said, I said who are all these who are all these people and she said oh they're interns I said great I'll, I'll intern and she said no you can't they're they're still in college um, they're for people who are still in college and I said well I just graduated I have no problem I'll take it she said no she didn't really have a good reason but she said they we only pay 525 an hour I said, perfect, I'll start tomorrow. And I showed up, and that was my first time I had gotten any sort of pay, albeit not much. Um, and they put me on the Kool-Aid account. And our job for Kool-Aid was to increase sampling. Okay. So we traveled the country, and Kool-Aid hired, or we, on their behalf, we hired basketball players. And our job was to go into gyms, and the basketball player, the NBA player, would do a clinic. And the Kool-Aid guy would be there, and we'd take pictures and sign autographs. And, and that was really the assignment. Um, the, the catch was, being the low man on the totem pole, somebody had to dress up in the inflatable Kool-Aid suit. And that was me. You seemed like you were just, yes, I will do this. Were you um, reluctant? Back in the day, nobody asked you these things. They said, this is what you will do. So keep in mind, this is July and August. We're in unair-conditioned gyms. I'm wearing a suit that is not has no ventilation whatsoever, and it's this huge thing. And I've got a great picture of that. And 
there were 10, 12-year-old kids who were betting to see who could knock me down. So when I wasn't looking, they would come running at me. And, <laughs> and, and that, that, was my, that was my way I broke into the business. You, I have so many questions. <laughs> I don't know where to start. I'm going to start with the fact that you sounded like you were an exceptionally motivated recent college grad. That's, that's unusual. I don't know if I was exceptionally motivated, but you know, the necessity is the mother of invention. I needed a job. My parents were made it very clear they were not going to support me. I wasn't especially motivated high school or college student, so it was one of those things where, okay, I'm graduating. Well, life is getting real. I got to do something. That being said, I think there's a big difference between wanting to be successful and willing to do what it takes to be successful. And I tell that to my kids all the time. And that's the one lesson that I try to really instill is if you want something, you have to be willing to work at it. And you have to be introspective to understand what you're lacking and dig in. And I think that sort of self-awareness and then the willingness to go grind it out to acquire those skills or experience is something that's missing with a lot of people. Tell me a little bit about a time, I don't know, what comes to mind if I say, do you remember when you were kind of sort of grinding it out, um, had to put in put in some of that time to actually figure out what you were doing? Is that after uh, your MBA or I, I, I would I would I would be challenged to think about when I didn't have to do that. I mean, it starts with being the Kool-Aid guy and grinding it through. <laughs> Business school was a grind, not only because I knew I couldn't afford the way things were changing to just disappear from what was happening in the World Wide Web which is what it was called back then, for two years. So I worked on a couple different startups on the side. I was grinding out to try and get an internship or a full-time job because all of my classmates were going to Wall Street, consulting, or packaged goods. Those are traditional tracks. Those companies came and recruited on campus. They hired their interns in the fall of first year, Mm -hmm. and they hired their full-time employees in the fall of second year. There were no people looking in advance for internet people that wasn't something that happened you had to grind your way through to try and get into the right place at the right time and both my internship and my full-time job i didn't get till i was in april so that was that was a grind both hustle wise and also mentally and then i think about everything that happened between then and and pretty much now there's been far more failure than it has been success and so we really had to grind through everything through my my career I think that's been one of the keys to success, frankly. Um, that's interesting about sort of the, you, you were one of the few people, you know, in your, in your track uh, at Stern who, was, who wanted to do something with the World Wide Web PS. That's what the WWW stands for, for yeah. people listening. Um, what, what, what was that experience like? You were in school, you, everyone was working towards a track. And, you know, from what I know about business schools, it, it, a lot of it still is true today. There's, there is a certain track for a lot of people. And when you're outside that track, it feels like you're doing double the work. Absolutely. I think one of the things that, I, that I've always been sort of blessed with, I guess, is I, I've been sort of oblivious to what other people are doing and been very comfortable kind of doing my own thing. I don't think my parents thought that was a great thing when I was in high school, but it's you just have to tune that out and find something that you're excited about and believe in that and believe in yourself and commit to it. If you worry about what other people are doing, it's very easy to get distracted. It's extremely easy to get distracted and focus on what you're doing is a critical component to being successful. And, and I often say, whether it's individually or it's companies, the first thing you need to do is decide what you're not doing. As opposed to figuring out, this is what I'm going to focus on, 
you start to say, here are the things that fall outside of that. And this, what, deciding what you're not going to do is often more important than deciding what you are going to do. Were you, were you this aware of that thing when you were going through it? Was this something that sort of came with hindsight when you look back on those years and you're like, oh, this, this is the thing that worked. This is why what I did was working, that I was focused, I was deciding what you weren't doing. Because I think there's a lot of truth in that. There's a, it's the sort of illness of comprehensiveness. You know, you want to try and do everything and everyone has to be good at everything and everyone has to be, you know, use both their hands to write and all of that. But it's definitely something that, were you aware that you were thinking that way at the time? I don't think it was something conscious. I think it's just kind of the way my brain works, which is where do I want to go and let me work backwards on how to get there. So I always think about where do I want to be at X time or what do I want to get out of this meeting? And then what do I need to do to prepare so the meeting goes in a particular way mm-hmm. and just work backwards. And anything that doesn't fit Take it in out. that, you just don't do. And that's just sort of the, whatever reason, that's the way my brain works. I don't think it's rocket science. I think it's just kind of reverse engineering success. Mm -hmm. And you can do that by studying other people. You can do that by um, reading books. You can do that by thinking. Um, But Thinking. Yeah. (laughs) Unusual concept. (laughs) Um, You mentioned studying other people. Uh, Who who are, you know, one or two people that you feel like you studied, you know, throughout your career or during your, during sort of this whole period that you went, you said, okay, here's something I could learn from yeah. or not learn from. So yeah, when you said well, that, you were like, it, oh, I don't want to do it, that. It's, it's funny because people ask me who my mentors were. And I say, one of the things that's really influenced me the most in my career is the fact that I had shitty mentors. And I really, I, what I did was I learned how not to lead a company and how not to manage by watching Mm-hmm. these people and so a i think that has helped me make, become a better leader because i've seen sort of that i don't know if, how many of listeners watch seinfeld but there's a famous episode where george costanza decides to do the opposite of all yes. of his instincts love that one. so that was really been my management approach in terms of looking at mentors but it also has influenced me as i've tried i don't know if i've succeeded but i've tried as a leader to actually be a good mentor because i do think that that made life a lot harder for me because I didn't have somebody who took me under under their wing. You didn't have someone to emulate. It's not just emulate, but you need to, someone to bounce things off, someone to put their arm around you and say, hey, Brian, like the way you handle that meeting could have gone better if you did X, Y, or Z. In the absence of that, when things went poorly, you just had to say, why did they go poorly? And just be introspective yourself and say, what could I have done differently? That's a lot harder than if somebody who has the benefit of experience could have told you that maybe ahead of time or um, right afterwards. Mm -hmm. What were some of the things you learned not to do when it came to leadership stuff as you were watching these, you know, shitty mentors? Well, the first thing is both. I was at an internet 1.0 social media company called theglobe.com. I wanted to ask about the globe. I had it written down. Yeah, that's sort of a circus. Um, And... Then I went to a company called Netophone, which was Skype before Skype. And these were both public companies, high-flying, billion-dollar-plus market caps, businesses that trailed behind it. They, they failed for different reasons, but I certainly took away being the cult of personality as a leader is something that not only is undesirable, but not sustainable. And so some leaders make it about themselves as opposed to what we collectively are trying to build. So I've always tried to 
avoid making anything about me. And I think that's been one of the, one of whether that's been a key or not key is that I never wanted, fast forward to today, I never wanted 360i to be about any individual. Hmm. I wanted it to be about a team, about a system, something that was going to be sustainable. Well, it also seems like a pragmatic approach because when you build something around someone, even if it's that person's a superstar, you always, it's something not really in your control. If that person, I don't know, burns out or leaves or changes drastically. I mean, it's a pragmatic approach as much as it is. It's less kumbaya than you think. Yeah, no, it's certainly it's certainly practical. It's also depends whether you're interested in sustainability. I mean, I'd say the number one question I've got, you know, we sold the company to Dentsu in 2010. And I see people who have been in the space for a long time who have known, they said, what are you still doing there? Because there's this assumption that entrepreneurs are associated with exits. And I think about entrepreneurs as sustainable legacy. Hmm. And is something actually better when you leave? And so the only way for something better when you leave is if you actually don't make it about yourself, that you're making about what are you doing, where's the vision, and then hire people who actually are better than you. And then create a culture which can last even beyond those people that you hired directly. Do you think there's a cult of personality disease in the industry? I mean, this is an industry that has a lot of cults of personalities we've seen it and it's you know across agencies across media across marketers um they, they exist they're very very prevalent and it almost feels like today they're more prevalent i mean i think i cover more people in a way than i used to you know even eight years ago that there's entire companies built around people it feels like i think our industry collectively as you describe it has more than most industries and i mean personally i find it distasteful why do you think there's more here? I don't know. I don't know. And it also seems like to a certain extent, it, people have been successful because of it. And that just sort of reinforces that behavior. I don't know. It's puzzling to me, frankly. Yeah, it almost feels like there's, what are the peculiar circumstances that in media, you know, including media and marketing that lend themselves to creating an atmosphere that rewards that instead of punishes that? In a way, there has to be something. Is it the awards? Maybe it's the awards. Maybe it's can. I don't know. Can bashing is in. So. <laughs> Forgot I'd get into it. Um, let's talk about the globe. I mean, you you know, it was Facebook before Facebook. Yeah. I guess I call it. Um, what was sort of what was that whole experience like? Kind of working in you know Web 1.0. Um, tell me some stories from then. It, it's hard to describe the chaotic environment that existed back then. Nobody. You have to remember, people were on the internet through modems. They were very slow. Um, We went public as a public company. I think we had less than $10 million of revenue. Unheard of today. Oh, it would be completely unheard (laughs) of. And and it wasn't advisable then. But there was just this euphoria that happened, that this was the great Wild West, that business metrics didn't matter. It was all about eyeballs. Advertising would follow eyeballs, which you you still hear that today. But when you heard it then... Anytime you hear there's a new paradigm, you should grab your wallet because you know that somebody's trying to sell you something that that you probably shouldn't be buying. And it was just this feeling of you knew you were in a revolution. You had no idea how it was going to end. Young people, including myself at that point, were given enormous amounts of responsibility. And it was just exhilarating and exciting and chaotic and frustrating and all the emotions you could possibly think of. Um, We... The Globe was founded by two two guys in their dorm in Cornell. Very smart guys. Um, 
but again, they're 24. They're running a public company. They've never worked at another company. Uh, there's, there was just a lot, there was just a lot going on. Is there an instinct to romanticize that in a way today? I don't know. It'd be a better question for you, you know, because I lived it, so I don't think about <laughs> it romanticizing it. So yeah, because I do think that you know, me or maybe a lot of people listening, there is there is this. Maybe it's the social network effect, but you know, you kind of see that and you think that's what I want. I want to be the I want to be the you know the guy who drops out or woman who drops out of, but mostly a guy mm. who drops out of my college and does this and does the all nighters and my work becomes my life. The office is like home work is family you know all of these things and all of these ways of thinking about modern work that it's very true today even though you know yeah. it's we, we sort of witness what what does happen after i'd say the exciting thing about today it is much easier to be an entrepreneur today than it was then you can start a company with so much less capital i mean you have everything from office space via we work you have amazons you can launch um on servers it wasn't like that back then. You needed incredible capital. You needed, it, people needed to work near each other. Remote working didn't work. Um, it just was a very different environment. I think it's a lot, it's never going to be easy because there is a struggle in building a company. But I would say that this is a much better time to build a company. So no one should be looking back to those days and saying, wow, I wish I lived during that time period. I think this is a much better environment for an entrepreneur. Capital is much easier to, mm -hmm. to acquire mm -hmm. and you need far less of it. What was it like when sort of, you know, the tide turned, um, things sort of started? I mean, you mentioned failure earlier. Um, talk about a time you sort of felt that, wow, I'm about to fail or whatever I'm doing is about to fail. So my, my really good friends from business school would ask me, what the hell are you doing? Why are you pursuing this? And one of them, they all on Wall Street? They went to Wall Street. Some issues there. <laughs> Just uh, you wait five more years. Yeah. Your time will come. It, you know, in many ways it did. But they, one of my friends said to me, the internet's going to go the way of the ham radio, which was something that was a hype technology that didn't go anywhere for, for those who don't remember that. And so when 2000 came around and the internet bubble burst, Many, many people were like, I told you so. This was a complete fad. And still, which was a pretty dramatic failure. And I joined Netophone. Uh, my partner at the Globe, uh, who was running ad sales, I was a general manager, Will Margoloff. He and I went to Netophone together. Um, and we joined in April of 2000. The mm -hmm. internet bubble really burst around March. I mean, March, April, May of that time period. Um, and... It was a scary time because you weren't sure if any of these businesses were going to stay in business mm -hmm. because so many bad decisions had been made based on a euphoric view of the future that it, the spending was something that was extremely difficult to, to, to ramp down. Now, a lot of people concluded, because there were huge layoffs, lots of companies went out of business, a lot of people concluded falsely that the internet was all hype and was going to go away. It was very clear to me that no, these were just businesses really poorly run that got ahead of themselves and that the hype had gotten ahead of reality and it was going to take some time for this very, very immature technology. You were very sure about this feeling you had. Listen, at that time I was married. My son was born in April of 2000. I was, I was, it wasn't just like a gut feel. Uh -huh. I was betting, you know, arguably my family's, you know, ability to, 
to live prosperity, you know, with prosperity um, on this. And, and that was the career I was pursuing. So, yeah, no, I was sure of it. I was sure of it. Um, I wasn't sure how quickly the business would mature. I wasn't sure exactly how. I'm not, I was not Nostradamus. But I was confident that this revolution that had brought in on communications was going to continue. And the, and the reason Will and I went to Netophone is we said, all right, this social media revolution that was happening on desktop was definitely here to stay. This is how people are going to want to communicate. It's going to evolve. And when we saw the opportunity at Netophone, we said, with, which is voice over IP, we said, this is going to change the phone mm-hmm. and how we use the phone. Um, so that was exciting. And again, that company was extremely poorly run. We, we had, before Will and I got there, right before it, they had cut deals so that to offer free phone calls from AOL and Yahoo Instant Messenger. And the whole business model was we would sell ads against that. The one problem is that at that time it cost a penny a minute to complete a phone call, yeah. um, which would imply that you need to have a $10 CPM every single minute with even, effective sell-through rate. Right. Granted, there were very few advertisers. There weren't that many advertisers Yeah, I'm going to ask you whether did you get a lot? Did you were, have a lot of inbound? <laughs> we looked at that model the, the month that we started, and this is before the bubble completely cratered. It was just kind of starting to happen. He said, under the best of circumstances, we told the CEO, I said, under the best of circumstances, this deal is a bloodbath. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. After a break, Brian's going to talk about the fateful plane ride he took to save 360i after a very disastrous acquisition back in 2005. Stay tuned. But right now, a quick break to tell you about Digiday Plus. Digiday Plus is our premium membership product. Join our community to get a first-hand look at how digital is transforming the world of business. You'll get Digiday Magazine, exclusive research, and invites to member-only events, and it's only $395 a year. Please sign up at digidayplus.com. Now, back to the episode the best of circumstances quickly turned to be the worst of circumstances and it was an incredible bloodbath but it, it really turned out to be that kind of company imploding failure turned out to be an unbelievable learning opportunity for me which i think is a, is a great lesson in that at&t had bought through a majority of the company or control of the company mm-hmm. 75 dollars a share in april of 2000 which had a huge valuation about 18 months later, John Malone and Liberty Media bought back that stake at $5 a share. Wow. And they, want, they were very interested in using voice over IP for cable television. But we were losing about $125 million a year and so in our core business, and they wanted to get it profitable. So long story short, I, I ended up evolved into becoming president of that company, and my job was to get the company profitable. And I had to figure this out. We were most of our half our business was overseas. I had never been overseas except for vacation. You know, I had never run a business there, and it was mostly in emerging markets. We had people everywhere. We had, so we had to basically restructure that company to get in a place, and then go to Wall Street and raise money so that we had enough money to invest in the cable, which is what John Malone wanted. Anyway, long story short, that was an unbelievable experience extremely painful what was the hardest decision you had to make during that time well we had to lay off a lot of people i don't remember if it was 300 or 400 but it was a lot of people um and so you know the personal toll on that was 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 pretty significant um so far and away that was the hardest decision um the business the other business decisions weren't so hard the company was so poorly run so just sort of just putting in parameters that aligned everybody's interests and rebuilt a culture of accountability and everybody understanding the priorities that 
that was good real life lessons that I got to both learn and teach at the same time that helped when we decided, oh, you know, this was a really good experience, but this isn't fun, high growth company. I didn't, I'm not a, that's not really what I signed up for. And so in 2004, rejoined with Will and, and we started Innovation Interactive. So I sort of took all those lessons and we brought that level of perseverance into that business. And I think, I know for sure that that helped us because we had a lot of trials and tribulations. Mm-hmm. You know, starting that business and 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 going through it. And what was it like starting starting that business? I mean, you. So was that the? I guess was that the first time you were kind of starting something from scratch entirely? Yes. What was the thing that surprised you? What was the What was the thing that you were just like? I didn't expect that. The stress. There's a lot of stress being management, but until you actually own a business and you're CEO and you literally are responsible for payroll, I don't think that's very hard to. To describe, I don't think you can train somebody for that. And at that point, your identity is very much wrapped up in your company. So failure is not just, hey, I lost money or I had to lay off everybody. It's telling the entire world that what you decided to build failed. Mm -hmm. And that's a very personal thing. And that's the kind of thing that will keep you up at night and drive you to work far more hours and with far more intensity than if you're working for somebody else. You mentioned stress. How do you, how did you deal with it? Did you deal with it? I think I just swallowed hard. I don't, I don't, (laughs) I don't think I had any great, great, um, tricks other than I just always told myself, worry about what you control, what you can control and manage what you cannot. So there's a lot of things that are out of your control and stressing over those things is really counterproductive. You just have to react to those things or to the extent you can predict them, predict scenarios, prepare for them. But the things you can control, who you hire, how you position your company, how you motivate them, those are things that you really got to sweat every single detail because everything matters. Do you have a, do you have a favored test? for hiring or a or thing that you, I don't know, a red flag that you always watch for or anything like that? You know, it's not so different than the questions you're asking me. I like to probe to find out what challenges the people have faced and how they dealt with them and how really to try and uncover, do they run? Did you ever consider running? Did you ever consider just saying, oh, I'll quit. I have that MBA. I could still... Still try to, you know, go downtown and see what can happen. A little bit more downtown. You know, I said I mentioned earlier, I just I've never been good at authority, the handling authority. So the idea of working for somebody else, I didn't mention before after business school, but before I went to the Globe, I worked at McGraw Hill. I worked for an amazing woman. She uh during in between business school years, uh she hired me to help launch businessweek.com. Um, and we had a great time. It was, you know, I got to do things that no intern should be able to do because I was only the second business employee. Like what? Launch a website, Just write entirely. a business plan, present to the CEO. Like there was literally, I was her only arms and legs wow. on the business side. And so she offered me a job to work at S&P, which was a sister division of McGraw-Hill. And at the time, they wanted to launch, they did launch a personal finance website that was going to compete with Yahoo Finance and CBS. And you know what? It should have been dominant because S&P is a trusted name. Why wouldn't you take advice from them? 
anyway, I worked day and night. They hired me. I ran business development. I was cutting deals with Yahoo and Lycos and AOL and all these people. And I'd be in the office by 7, 7.15. I'd stay till after 7. And I just had my head down the entire time. And after the first year, she, we had, had my review. And she said, wow, this is unbelievable, the things that you accomplished. The one thing I really got to caution you on is you got to dial it back a little bit. You're scaring some of the other folks. And they're not sure they can trust you. And I literally had tears in my eyes. And I said, why? Why? What have I done? I said, you're just too intense. You're working too hard. And they feel like maybe you're making them look bad. You're putting pressure on them. Well, whatever. And I said, I just looked at her. Sorry I made you feel bad. Uh, I came home to my wife and I said, I can't work at a big company. It's, man it's about managing politics as opposed to getting stuff done. That was probably June or July. And I called Will, who was at theglobe.com. And he had been bugging me to come over there. And, I, and that's how I ended up over there. But the long story short is that only confirmed what I kind of knew all along, which is I don't work well in those kinds of environments. I like chaos. I like being in an environment where there's a lot going on and there's that intensity to do something. You know, people talk about this peacetime yeah. businesses and wartime businesses. A peacetime business would be something that's kind of, there's not many of them these days. But chugging they, along. They're chugging along. Things are good. Um, you know, go along to get along. And then there are businesses where you're fighting for survival. I like the energy and intensity on those kind of businesses. Was, was 360i, especially once, you know, it got going and, you know, started growing and all of that. Was that always chaotic? Was there, or when was there a sense of sort of, I want chaos. I will obviously have managed chaos, but I want to ensure that this remains chaotic and, was there a sense that you wanted to fight back against that turning eventually? Because as companies grow, there's always, okay, is this going to turn into another sort of managed corporate environment? Well, that's always the danger. And I don't think you can have innovation in a fully managed environment. At the same time as companies scale, you have to have organization. So philosophy has always been about organized chaos. Mm -hmm. You want to have chaos by design, not by default. Not because it's a dumpster fire. Yeah, it's otherwise it's, it's not a place that you can work or scale or do things. Um, I just think that when you're starting a company and you're growing, there's just tons of chaos. I mean, we, I'm not even sure if you, if you know this, but in, in 2005, we actually got acquired by a Japanese company called Live Door. It was November. We were raising money, and this company that was a billion-dollar-plus internet company was really one of the few entrepreneurial companies in Japan wanted us to be their platform in the US. And mm -hmm. they came in with a ridiculous offer. We were, I think, like a $30 million business, maybe even less than that. And they offered 100 plus million dollars. Mm -hmm. And they wanted us to be a platform and they were gonna give us capital to acquire companies. And remember, we were more than 360i. We had Search Ignite, which has right. become Ignition One. And we really had these designs. We were, we were modeling ourselves after a company called Aquantive, which was Razorfish. You know, it had Avenue A, Razorfish, it had um, Atlas, and it had Drive PM. And so we were modeling ourselves as an integrated marketing services company that would have these different divisions. Anyway, it was too good to pass up. We sold ourselves. This was November of 2005. Two months later, almost to the day, we woke up in the morning, and the cover of the Wall Street Journal was a headline that that company had made 50 acquisitions, and they, had, they were being accused of some improper accounting. And unlike what would happen in the U.S., they immediately arrested the CEO, 
who was... Who was, in, who was in Japan. Who was in Japan, who was a rogue figure. He wasn't bad. He was just rogue, and he was challenging the status quo, and, and the traditional agencies didn't like that. He was arrested, and the investment banker who did the deals committed suicide. And this created an unbelievable amount of sensation. Now, here we are. It's January of 2006. We've just sold our company. Our parent company is in absolute chaos. And you, you were, you were in the job. You weren't sort of. You hadn't had to change roles or anything like no, that. No, no, there was, there was, there was nothing to integrate into. They were hiring us, That's and it. they were going to give us capital to go acquire other companies. So we're sitting there running a company. And our employees are like, "What are we doing now?" And we said, "Guys, we have absolutely no idea, but let's just keep running the business." and stay the course now that became harder and harder as time went on because we couldn't get a good answer on what was going to happen and so rather than leave you talk about like we we said we we're on to something we're early stage at that point we were we were really focused on search and social and we said we can build a really interesting business out of this we just got to stay together and we did but eventually we flew to japan and Will and I said, listen, this business is a depreciating asset. We're really worth nothing without the team. And everybody's going to leave. It's amazing that they're still here 12 months after the scandal has happened. Because of your cult of personality? No, I hope not. I think people, <laughs> sure. believed, people believed, in, believed in what we're doing. And we convinced them to hire an investment banker to go sell the company. We said, go sell the company. Otherwise, it's literally going to go to zero. So I hired a banker, and every holding company was interested. And we did the presentations, and you know we also put in our own bid. We raised money. You were going to buy yourself back. We were going to buy ourselves back. And what ended up happening is a bunch of the holding companies were really interested, but they said we want, at the end, they were like, well, you guys, there's no earn out because you guys don't own anything of the company, but we, you know, requirement is you're going to sign five-year contracts. And we said, excuse me, did, did no one tell you? We're actually leaving the day after this deal closes. We're just doing our fiduciary responsibility by representing, but we actually are going to go start something else. We're not part of the sale process. So you should put your bid in based on what you think the company is worth without the top 12 people without in the you. company. And needless to say, there were no bids. <laughs> so we bought the company back with a private equity partner in 2007 and kept building it. And uh, then you went with another Japanese company. <laughs> by coincidence, another <laughs> Japanese company, a much better one, uh, uh, bought us in 2010. That's Brian Weiner, chairman of 360i. And that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sangal. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We're on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review and rate the show or just tweet at us. I'm your host, Shereen Patek. We'll see you next week.